Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10 is where we're going to be tonight to start off with. And like I said, before we started our recording, most likely next week and possibly the week after that. We'll just see how far we get. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10, John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is also the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him, we see it again, for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is a long section with a lot here. And like I said, we're probably going to take us at least two to three weeks to cover this section. But what I want you to see is that John in these 10 verses covers a thousand years of earth's future history. Scripture has long foretold of the time to come on the earth called the kingdom of God, where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And the book of Revelation is the one that shows us that this time called the kingdom of God is actually going to last a thousand years, or the kingdom of God on the earth, or the consummation, as you're going to see tonight, the consummation of the kingdom of God is going to last a thousand years. That's where we get the term millennial kingdom, thousand year reign of Christ on the earth. Now, it's obvious from the context here that this a thousand years is literal and not symbolic. First and foremost, because of the fact that it is said six times in seven verses, it's repeated. And when the thousand years are ended, and he will be there for 1,000 years. And when the thousand years, it keeps describing it in a very literal way. What I want you to do real quick is go with me to Psalm chapter 50. Go to Psalm chapter 50 and look at verses 7 through 12. Because for people that don't believe in a literal millennial kingdom, a thousand year reign of Christ on the earth, they will most always, because this is the verse that they've been taught to throw at us, they will most always take us to Psalm 50 and they'll show us this passage here. It says in verse 10, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. And people will say, well, is that a literal thousand hills? And therefore, they'll say, since this passage is not a literal thousand hills, you can't assume that the thousand years of Christ in Revelation 20 is literal. But I want to show you, again, you build your doctrine and you get your interpretation from context. Start in verse 7 and look closely what it says. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. 
I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves on the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not even tell you for the world and its fullness are mine. So you see in the context, this word thousand is referring to all the hills. And in the context, he's talking about all the animals, all the beasts, all the birds. And so we see that here it's just referring to in the context, the cattle on all the hills is mine. But if you go back now and look again at Revelation chapter 20, it's very clear that this thousand is not being used symbolically, but it is a literal one. Let me show you again real quick. It says in uh, verse 2, And he, this big angel, seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it, so he might not de deceive anybody, until what? The thousand years were ended. And then you see, go down to uh, verse 4. And I saw thrones and seated on them were thrown to those whom the authority judge was committed. I also saw those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for, again, a thousand years. And the rest of the dead didn't come to life until the thousand years was ended. And then, of course, we see down again uh, at the end of verse 6. Uh, they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. And then verse 7, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. If thousand in this one means just some unmeasurable number, it doesn't work in the context, does it? It very clearly in the context has to be a literal time period. So don't let people just say, well, a cattle on a thousand hills doesn't mean a thousand, therefore you can't take Revelation 20. Say to those people, look at the context. Context in Psalm 50 is, it's obvious he's talking about all the hills because it says all, every, all. In this context, because there's a measurable time period, this is a literal time period of God on the earth. Now, this is why, like I said, we call the time period to come of the millennial kingdom. But there's more to our reasoning than that. There's more to our reasoning than just saying this is the millennial kingdom than just the fact that Revelation 20 shows us that it's a thousand years. The kingdom of God has actually been a point of contention for Jews and Christians for many, many years. And one of the main reasons is because the Jews spoke of the kingdom, uh, sorry, is that Jesus and the scripture spoke of the kingdom of God in different terms. And that's what we're going to do tonight. I'm going to take some time to lay out for you the fact that the Bible actually talked about the kingdom of God in five main ways. And that's why I've given you all this little handout, this little definition. I found in all my study that Gene Mims in his book, Thine is the Kingdom, comes up with the best succinct description of the kingdom of God. I'm going to read it to you here, and we're actually going to break this down tonight scripturally. It says, The kingdom of God is the reign of God through Christ in the lives of persons as evidenced by His activity in, through, and around them. The kingdom was prophesied in the Old Testament, pictured in Israel, proclaimed by John the Baptist, inaugurated by Christ in His public ministry on earth, extended in the lives of believers through the church in the present age, and will be consummated by Christ when He returns to the earth to rule with His saints. And this is the best description I have ever found of the kingdom of God. And you want to keep this with you because this will help you. Because there are many people over the years in Christendom who think they understand the kingdom of God. But what they'll do is take one or two aspects of what the kingdom of God's full definition is and think that's the kingdom. In order to have a biblical understanding of the kingdom of God, you need to put all of what the scripture says about the kingdom of God together. And I'm going to show you tonight from scripture that the kingdom of God is wherever God's king, right? 
Well, by the way, he's been king over the whole world, over the universe. He's always been there, right? In Psalm 145, we won't turn there. It talks about how God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. It's always existed. Yet, on the earth, has he been in full control at all times? No. In one sense, yes. But in another sense, no, he doesn't exercise that authority. And you're going to see, as we've looked at in our study already, that there have been kingdoms that have come up on the earth. Well, let me not get ahead of myself. Go to Daniel chapter 7. You see, the Old Testament predicted the kingdom's coming. The Old Testament predicted the coming of the kingdom. Go to Daniel chapter 7. And look at verses 13 through 27. Daniel 7, starting in verse 13. Daniel says, And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So here we see that Daniel saw in his vision, this one like the Son of Man, presented before the Ancient of Days, which we know is God, and God gave this one like the Son of Man a kingdom that will never pass away. We know who this individual is, hopefully, right? It's Jesus. As for me, Daniel, go and keep reading, Dan Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. About, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and the sex seemed greater than its companions. And as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Here we see it again. Now you remember from earlier in our study of Revelation, this fourth beast is the vision of the Antichrist and his kingdom, the one last earthly kingdom ruled by man on the earth, and the one that comes and defeats him, of course, is Jesus. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. And they, sh and they shall be given into his hand for, we see it again, three and a half years, a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. So we see here that there have been, even though God's kingdom has always existed in the fact that God has always been in ultimate control, on the earth God has, because of man's sin and God's choice, allowed man to have rule, of course, under the authority of who? Satan, under the authority of Satan. 
And so therefore, there have been many kingdoms we've seen of the Babylonians, the Persians, the Medo-Persians, if you will, and then the Greeks and the Romans and so on. And there's going to be a one world kingdom again on the earth just until before the time of Jesus when he comes back. And this kingdom, this individual, the Antichrist, is going to be given authority for three and a half years. And then Jesus comes back and the kingdom is given to him forever and ever and ever. That's what the Bible talks about. So we see that the Old Testament had a lot of prophecies about the coming kingdom. More on that later, not tonight most likely. We'll touch on it a little bit. Next week we'll go into a lot more detail about the prophecies about the coming kingdom in the Old Testament. But we also see that, according to your definition here from Gene Mims, that not only was the kingdom prophesied about in the Old Testament, it was pictured in Israel. God set up the nation of Israel as a picture of what the kingdom should look like. Of course, as we know from our history, Israel didn't do the greatest job of being obedient to God's plan for them to be a picture of His kingdom. But go to 1 Chronicles chapter 28. Let me show you what I mean. In 1 Chronicles 28, look at verses 1 through 5. 1 Chronicles chapter 28, look at verses 1 through 5. It says, David assembled at Jerusalem all the officials of Israel, the officials of the tribes and the officers of the divisions that served the king, the commanders of thousands, the commanders of hundreds, and the stewards of all the property and livestock of the king and his sons, together with the palace officials, the mighty men, and all the seasoned warriors. Then King David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. And I made preparations for building... But God said to me, You may not build a house for my name, for you are a man of war and have shed blood. Yet the Lord of God of Israel chose me from all my father's house to be king over Israel forever. For he chose Judah as leader, and in the house of Judah my father's house, and among my father's sons he took pleasure in me to make me king over all Israel. And of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he has chosen Solomon my son to sit on the throne of what? The kingdom of the Lord over Israel. So this kingdom of God is wherever God's allowed to rule and reign. It has always existed, but for a time God had to, because he allowed man to have free will, man chose to follow Satan. He became the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air. There have been earthly man-led kingdoms on the earth, and of course all of those didn't follow God, as you know. He even designed to have the kingdom pictured in Israel. And the nation of Israel was to be his kingdom, and for him a kingdom of priests. And they were to be following his commands and doing on earth as it was in heaven, if you will, as they followed his, his decrees and his commands, and he would bless them and he would increase them. But the nation of Israel didn't do so good as well. The kingdom was also proclaimed by John the Baptist. Go to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. In Matthew chapter 3, look at verses 1, 2, and 3. It says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is, who, is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So when John the Baptist came on the scene, his message was a message of repentance because the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom's about to show up. Go ahead, Alan. I'm glad you brought that up, and there is none, but I'm going to show you scripturally why there's none. And as you, some of you have heard me say before, in, in Matthew, every time the kingdom of God is described, Matthew uses the term kingdom of heaven. Every other gospel writer uses the term kingdom of God. 
The reason Matthew says kingdom of heaven and not kingdom of God is because Matthew's audience, the people Matthew was writing to, were the Jews. He was wanting them to understand that Jesus was the Messiah. The Jews would not say the name God. Well, they would not. If you even know people today that are Jewish and are devout, they will send you emails and it'll have capital G asterisk D whenever they say God. They won't even mention the name of God because they felt that it was too holy to even speak. So Matthew, knowing that writing to Jews, he couldn't say kingdom of God. He always called it the kingdom of heaven. This has actually caused some of the confusion. But now let me, that's why some people think the kingdom is just when we get to heaven. No, 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 it's going to be a literal kingdom on the earth, and I'll show you that from Scripture. But in order, I'm glad you brought that up, Alan, because I actually, in my notes, have a little rabbit I want us to chase. And it goes right with your question. And like I told you before, I'm okay with chasing rabbits as long as you can catch them. And when you catch them, they taste good. This is a very catchable rabbit, and it tastes awesome. I want to show you from Scripture how the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are the exact same thing. Go to Matthew chapter 13. And look at verses 13 through 32. Matthew chapter 13. And look at verses 13, sorry, 31 through 32. Matthew 13, 31 through 32. Jesus is speaking. He says, therefore, I tell you. Sorry, I'm in chapter 12. Let me go to chapter 13. In verse 31, Jesus, it says, and he put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. All right. You with me? He said the kingdom of heaven is like what? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took, sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all the seeds. And when it's grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Go to Mark. Turn over one book to Mark chapter four. Look at verses 30 and 31. Mark chapter 4, verses 30 and 31. And he, Jesus, said, what can we compare, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that when man sows in the ground, it's the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Pretty clear, isn't it? Yeah. Kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are the exact same thing. So don't let people say, well, that's the kingdom of heaven. No, the kingdom of heaven is just a term that Matthew used because he couldn't say kingdom of God to the Jews. They would have rejected his book. So he just used the term kingdom of heaven. But that has caused some confusion because people just automatically assume that whenever it's talking about the kingdom of heaven, it's talking about when we get to heaven. And how many of you, myself included, for all the years were taught that the kingdom of heaven is when we get to heaven? No, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are the same thing. And the kingdom of God is a whole lot more than just when we get to heaven. It's actually a kingdom that has always existed, was prophesied about in the Old Testament, pictured in the nation of Israel, even though Israel didn't do a good job. John the Baptist, right before Jesus says, I want you to get ready. The kingdom is at hand. And who is he talking about? The king. <laughs> the king had, was coming to the earth. Not only was it prophesied or proclaimed by John the Baptist, the kingdom was inaugurated by Christ Jesus in his public ministry on the earth. You're in Mark. Go back up to chapter 1. Look at Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. It says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, 
The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus says, once John the Baptist, what was John's Baptist ministry? Ministry of repentance, preparing the way for the people to respond to Jesus, who was going to come and initiate the kingdom, if you will. After John the Baptist was arrested, as you know, did he ever get out of that arrest? No, he was put in prison and ultimately put to death. Actually, you'll even see later on, you can look at it yourself in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is talking about John the Baptist, and he says, Of men born of women, none has risen greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God will be greater than he. So even Jesus talked about the kingdom of God to come, and he said, John is awesome. Of a people born of women, there are many, many greater, greater than, than John the Baptist. But he's least in the kingdom. It's still to come. Because ultimately, even though God has been in control, he has not exercised that full control. And it's the reign of God. Where? Go back to your definition. The kingdom of God is the reign of God through Christ in the lives of persons as evidenced by his activity in and through and around them. Even though God has been in control, has it been evident to the world that God's in control? No, we even see in the book of Hebrews that everything was subjected to Jesus, yet we do not at present see everything subjected to Him. And so the kingdom of God really doesn't come to full consummation until Jesus Himself comes back to the earth and sets it all up. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Look at what Jesus says in Luke 17. Luke 17, verses 20 and 21. In Luke 17, verse 20, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, this is one of the passages that has caused a lot of confusion because there are people that just jump on this and say, That's right, the kingdom is not an actual kingdom that's going to be on the earth. It's a spiritual thing that's in us. That's partially true. We're going to see that in just a little bit. Because the kingdom is right now for those of us who are in Christ. And he's the ruler and reigner of our hearts, if you will. And we're going to see that in a second, that it's, it's extended through the lives of the church age. But Jesus is saying that the kingdom is more than just this measurable earthly thing. The kingdom, when he said the kingdom is in the midst of you, what was he saying? I'm here. Hello. I'm right here. I'm the king. The kingdom is wherever I'm here and I'm in control. That's where the kingdom is. They kept thinking that there was going to be this coming kingdom where they were going to be ruling and reigning. They didn't want a king. They just wanted to be king. <laughs> Streets of gold are actually after the kingdom. Streets of gold are going to happen in the new heaven and the new earth, but that's later in our study. Go to, Luke, go to Matthew chapter 4. Let me show you a little bit more clearly here. Go to Matthew chapter 4. Look at verses 23 and 25. Matthew 4, verses 23 and 25. And he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. By the way, I don't want you to miss this. The word gospel means what? Good news. The good news of the kingdom. And healing every disease and every affliction among, pe among people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. 
When Jesus came on the scene and began preaching the gospel of the kingdom or the good news of the kingdom, he also at the same time was healing people, casting out demons, healing people. Now that's important because that's an evidence of the kingdom. And I share that with you because that passage will help us understand Luke 11. Go to Luke 11 verses 14 through 23 and we'll put this all together here. In Luke chapter 11 verses 14 through 23, look at what the scripture says there. It says, Now he, Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the president of, prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. You see, Jesus, one of the many reasons why he was healing and casting out demons was to give evidence that the kingdom of God is among you. See, Satan had a kingdom. And in Satan's kingdom, what was he doing to people? Making them weak and sick. Because of Satan, there's sin on the earth. Folks, when people die because of cancer, it's because of Satan. Don't get mad at God because your family member died of cancer. Get mad at Satan. It's because of Satan and his kingdom that that stuff is on the earth. That's why when God sets up his kingdom and he comes back and he rules and reigns on the earth, people are going to live such a long, long time period. The Bible says if anybody dies at 100, and we'll get to that later on, not, not this week, but next week most likely, if anybody dies at 100 years old, they'll be considered a baby, an infant when they die during that time. And because Satan was the ruler of the world at the time, and it was his kingdom, even though there was men who had kingdoms on the earth, Satan's been in control. And when Jesus, the true king, showed up on the earth, one of the ways he evidenced the fact that his kingdom was now coming to the earth was that he was casting out demons and healing people. But what did men do when the king showed up and began to proclaim, the kingdom of heaven is here, it's in your midst? What did they do with the king? They rejected him. And didn't Jesus say that, if we know our scriptures? He talked about how they said, here's his son, let's kill him, and the vineyard will be ours. Well, the Bible all along knew, God knew that that was going to happen. It was all according to his plan. So the kingdom has been long prophesied in the Bible. It was pictured in Israel, but not fully experienced. It was inaugurated, or sorry, proclaimed by, announced by John the Baptist. The kingdom of heaven is near. It's right here, folks. The kingdom of God is here. And then Jesus inaugurated and says, it's here. The kingdom's here. It's in your midst. And it's more than just some kingdom that you get to come and see. It's here. It's within you. But then he was rejected. He was put to death. And we see from our definition that the kingdom is extended in the lives of believers through the church in the present age. Right now, the kingdom of God is evidenced where and how on this earth? Where is the, how is the kingdom seen on this earth? 
through us, through the believers who have responded, and He's become our King and Lord, and He lives within us. And as he, remember, His kingdom is His activity in and through and around through those of us who are allowing Him to be King. Go to Revelation chapter 1. Go to Revelation chapter 1. Look at verses 4 through 8. Something we read a long time ago at the beginning of the study is hopefully going to make a whole lot more sense now. Revelation chapter 1. Look at verses 4 through 8. It says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to be, him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He's coming with the clouds, and every, knee will see, every eye will see Him, and every, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him, even so. Amen. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. We, at this time, those of us who have responded to God's offer of salvation, who understand that He was put to death for our sins, and He was risen again from the dead to prove that He was the one that the Father sent, and that He was the prophesied one, those of us who have responded, God has in this church age, again, this is another dispensation, in this church age, been exemplifying the kingdom through the church. Oh, by the way, folks, don't let pe people tell you that God's not still healing people. We're afraid of that kind of stuff. And we've weakened what the kingdom should be. But the Bible teaches that people say, well, uh, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13 that these things are going to cease. Yeah, if you look at the context, it's when we get to heaven. That's when the prophecies are going to cease and the tongues are going to cease and these types of things. And again, don't misunderstand me. I think a lot of people's definition of tongues is not a biblical definition. But the Bible is very clear that through us, what did Jesus say? You will do even greater things than these. Folks, I believe without question, but for those who understand what it means to live in His Spirit and control of the Spirit within us, being filled with the Spirit is not some supernatural thing where all of a sudden God just pours out His Spirit on you and you're out of control. The Bible actually says in the book of Corinthians that the prophet, the, the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophet. In other words, if anybody says, well, I couldn't help it, I was out of control, I was under the Spirit. That's not what the Bible teaches. Under the control of the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, you can put the words controlled by instead of filled with, and it's the same thing. When I'm preaching, as the Spirit of God takes control of me, and I actually allow Him to speak through me as I'm preaching to you, if someone were to raise a hand like Alan had a question, I'm able to stop and allow the Spirit of God to show me how to even have let Him speak or have Him ask a question. Being filled with the Spirit is not some out-of-control thing where you fall down backwards and the eyes roll in the back of your head. Being filled with the Spirit is just simply being under the control of the Spirit. And listen, for Christians who are willing to learn how to walk in the Spirit. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, it says, So I say, walk in the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. He then says in verse 25, So if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. For those of us who have been born again and we're alive because of the Spirit of God, we pass from death to life. He says to us, learn how to keep in step with the Spirit. And for those of us who learn how to keep in step with the Spirit and say no to our flesh, what did Jesus say? These kind come out by fasting and prayer. It's not because we all of a sudden call a time of fasting and a time of prayer. Prayer, all of a sudden we have supernatural power in that situation where Jesus' disciples couldn't cast out the demon, but Jesus came and just told it to come out. And then later they came and said, how come we couldn't do this? He said, these kind come on only out by fasting and prayer. Let me ask you, did Jesus fast? 
Not in that instance. Did he even pray a prayer? You look at the story. He says to the demon, come out. What Jesus was saying was, in order to have the Spirit's power, you don't all of a sudden have to call for a time of fasting and call for a time of prayer. But if you learn how to live a life of saying no to the flesh and yes to the Spirit, if you learn how to live a life of walking in the Spirit, then you have more power. And actually, the things that Jesus did, I believe God still is doing. And I know of people across the globe who understand this. And I, have, I could tell you story upon story of people that are being healed to this day. Actually, people even being risen back from the dead in parts of the world where God is using it to give evidence that the kingdom of God is still here and that God is alive. But this is not the kingdom. When we talk about the kingdom, there's more to it than just now. And so many people try to say, there is no coming kingdom. It's now in the evidence in the life of the church. You know what? They're partially true, except they're wrong when they say there's no coming kingdom. Go to 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, sorry, 1 Peter chapter 2. And just remind you of what we just read in Revelation, how he's made us to be a kingdom and priests. In 1 Peter chapter 2, look at verses 9 through 12. A very familiar passage for many of you, I'm sure. First Peter 2, look at verse 9. But you, talking to the Christians, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and, and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We are a different group of people. Why? Because the kingdom of God has come upon us. And we're to be living our lives in such a way that the world would see that there's something different about us because the king, Jesus, lives within us. Let your light shine before men that they may glorify you, that they may glorify your father who's in heaven. The kingdom showed up on this earth. The king was here. He was rejected. But the kingdom is still existing in the lives of those of us who have responded in faith. It's extended in the lives of the church, uh, believers through the church age. Oh, but there's a another part of this definition. The kingdom will be consummated by Christ himself when he returns to the earth and to rule with his saints. Remember how we read back in Daniel? That Daniel saw in his vision... That there were these beasts, these kingdoms that came to the earth. And there was a fourth one that was so terrifying. And it had ten horns and seven heads and all this stuff. We've been studying about that. You remember in Revelation. And he said that it, this beast was so terrifying. And it was even having war against the saints. And then the one who had been given the kingdom by the Ancient of Days came. And defeated him. And the kingdom was given to him for how long? Forever. And ever. Go to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. Look at verses 15 through 18. Don't miss this again because we saw this when we were in this section earlier, but I don't want you to miss it again. Revelation 11 verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. What's missing? Who is to come is not there. 
You know why he's not there? Because this is when he's coming. At this point, when they say the kingdom of our Lord has become the kingdom, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, they won't have to say who is to come because at that point he's coming back. He's here. And their nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged, for the rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Folks, do you see it? When Jesus comes back, he sets up his kingdom and it's going to be an everlasting kingdom. Now, don't miss this. We also saw back in Daniel, if you remember this, that the kingdom wasn't just given to Jesus. Who was the kingdom given to as well? His saints. We already saw this earlier. We might not have understood it at the time. Go to Revelation chapter 5. Look at verses 6 through 10. In Revelation chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. It says, when he, Jesus, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall what? What? Reign on the earth. Do you see it? It's been there all along. They shall reign on the earth. We have seen that the kingdom of God is intimately tied to what's happening and will happen on the earth. That's the important thing I want you to understand. The kingdom of God, let me read you your definition again, is the reign of God through Christ in the lives of persons as evidenced by his activity in, through, and around them. The kingdom was prophesied in the Old Testament, pictured in Israel, proclaimed by John the Baptist, inaugurated by Christ during his public ministry on the earth, extended in the lives of believers through the church in the present age, and will be consummated by Christ when he returns to the earth to rule with his saints. What I want to do tonight in the time we have left is to walk you through a very detailed study. So get ready and be ready to write some scriptures down to show you that the Bible has always talked about this kingdom being on the earth. Like I said, the term kingdom of heaven has confused a lot of us and we think the kingdom is when we get to heaven. No, the kingdom is going to be on this earth and I want you to see it. Go to Matthew chapter 6 verses 9 through 10. We'll start there. Matthew chapter 6 starting in verse 9. Jesus is teaching what we call the Lord's Prayer, the model for prayer, a template for prayer. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom what? Not us go there, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Go to Matthew chapter 5, look at verses 1 through 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he first sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, which we know is now the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit what? Again, we see it. It's a future prophecy of you will inherit the earth. Go to Psalm 37. Psalm 37, look at verses 1 through 9. Fret not yourself because of evildoers, folks. Don't be envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. 
He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall what? Inherit the land. Go to Psalm 37, look at verses 10 and 11. We're in the same second. Just keep reading. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. And the meek shall inherit the land, the earth, and delight themselves in abundant peace. By the way, does anybody realize that when Jesus was teaching in the Beatitudes there in Matthew 5, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth, he wasn't teaching something new. He was quoting Psalm 37. Well, he wrote it. But do you see what the scripture's saying? There's going to be a time when there will be no wicked people on the earth. When is that going to happen? At the end of the tribulation, when Jesus comes and judges and the Jews will be going under his rod, as we looked at last week. The righteous Jews will enter the kingdom. The unrighteous won't. The, the nations will be gathered and the ones who treated Israel properly will be allowed into the kingdom of God. The ones that don't will be cast out. Folks, the Bible's been very clear. Go to verse 22. One more place in the same, same chapter. Psalm 37. Look at verse 22. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. Folks, the Bible has told us all along that this time when the kingdom comes, we already saw it in Revelation chapter 20. Remember, at the end of the seven year tribulation period, at the end of the time period when Jesus, when he comes back and sets up his kingdom, the Satan will be bound for how long? For a thousand years. And at that time, we saw in Revelation 20 that those who had died came back to life. The Old Testament saints, the tribulation saints, the ones who didn't take the mark of the beast. They all came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The Bible's promise to all of us who have put our faith in God through Jesus Christ, whether you're an Old Testament saint, a church age saint, tribulation saint, you're going to be on the earth with Jesus when he rules in, on the earth because all of the righteous have been promised the land. Oh, we saw it earlier that it was pictured in Israel, didn't we? God made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob about the land. And about them receiving the land of Israel and their descendants receiving the land of Israel as an everlasting possession. And I want you to see it scripturally. Start with me in Genesis chapter 12. And I'm going to do this fast enough that I'm going to need you to just write fast if you can't flip fast with me. But I wish you can flip with me because I want you to see it for yourself. Genesis 12, look at verses 1, 2, and 3. A very familiar passage. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Did you catch that? To the specific spot in the land that I'll show you. And I'll make of you a great nation. And I'll bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. And I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Go to chapter 13. Look at verses 14 through 18. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. And so that if anyone can count the dust of the earth, your offspring shall also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to who? To you. So Abraham moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at the Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Go to Genesis 17. 
in case you missed it earlier, let's look again in chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning, sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, has it been pretty clear that God promised Abraham? He keeps repeating the promise over and over. I'm going to give to you and your descendants this land. Go with me to Genesis 26. He now makes the same promise to Abraham's son Isaac in Genesis 26, verses 1, 2, and 3. It says that there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. You see it? Again, the same promise now to Isaac. I'm going to give to you and to your descendants this land. By the way, if God is said to Abraham... I'm going to give to you and your descendants this land, but Abraham has died, and God now promises his son, I'm going to give to you and your descendants this land one day. Pretty clear. Did Abraham ever get the land? No, he died before he got the land. It was never given to him. Go to Genesis chapter 28. Isaac had a son. We know him as Jacob. In Genesis 28, look at verses 10 through 15. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and laid down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land in which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. If he's still saying, I will give it to you, has he given it yet? So what's happening, folks? God's making a promise to Abraham that I'm going to give you this land and your offspring. Abraham never got it. He then told Isaac, I'm going to give to you and your offspring this land. Isaac never got it. And Jacob never got it either in his lifetime. Go to Genesis 35. We'll see that Jacob's name has been now being changed to Israel. In Genesis 35, and we see the promise one more time. Look at verses 19 uh, through, sorry, Genesis 35, verse 9, verse 9 through 15. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. 
And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall dwell, sorry, kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to, your, to Abraham and to Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set, a pillar in, set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel, which means the house of God. So here we see Jacob's name changed to Israel and God repeats the promise. I'm going to ask you a question for those that know your Bible. Did Jacob ever receive the land? Never did. They were all sojourners and strangers wandering in tents. As you know, because of the famine. They went down to Egypt because remember Joseph became the one who came in power in Egypt and his family all moved down to help get some help and they ended up staying there. Then as they grew, they became slaves to the Egyptians and they were in slavery for 400 years. And it wasn't until the time of Moses that God called them out and brought them out of Egypt into the land that he had promised them, the promised land. The nation of Israel didn't receive the land as their inheritance until the time of Moses, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob they had been long dead. So folks, we got a problem or we got something pretty cool coming. We got no problem. When God said, I'm going to give to you and your descendants that after you this land for an everlasting promise, an everlasting gift. God, he can see things further down the road than us, can he? And actually, Jesus talked about this promise in Matthew chapter eight. Go to Matthew chapter eight. Look at verse 11. Matthew chapter 8, look at verse 11. He says, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. Here in Matthew it says heaven, but it's of God, in the kingdom of God. People are going to come from all these nations and they're going to sit at the table in the kingdom, which is going to be consummated when Jesus comes back to the earth. And remember, all the dead who are righteous... Well, we already know that those of us who have been saved are going to go be with the Lord until He comes back to rapture the church. And when He raptures the church, we go be with Him until He comes back to the earth. When He comes back, we come with Him. At the end of that time, that time period after that, the righteous dead from the Old Testament and the tribulation saints will get their new bodies. And we will live on the earth, on this earth. And not only that, the nation of Israel will get into this later in our study. We won't get into it tonight. It'll be probably next week or the next because we're going to spend a lot of time in this kingdom of God because there's been no teaching on the kingdom of God. There's been no teaching on the millennial kingdom hardly at all in our churches. So we're going to spend a lot of time letting you see it very clearly that the Bible tells, I'm going to show you that there's going to be a Gentile branch of government in the millennial kingdom. There's going to be a Jewish branch of government in the millennial kingdom that Jesus himself is going to rule and reign from Jerusalem. David is going to be his prince ruling with him from Jerusalem. They, the, the 12 apostles will be over the 12 tribes of Israel ruling over them. We who are Gentiles who have been a part of the kingdom will be rulers over cities all over the globe as we rule over the Gentile nations. It's, all that's in here, by the way, folks. I'm not making any of that up. Can't wait to show it to you. But for tonight as we close, what I want to do is do this. Not only them, but like I just touched on, the, not, but all the redeemed of Israel and the believers of all the nations will be able to live on this earth in that kingdom of God to come. Oh, by the way, when Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom, things will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. That's why he taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, are the people that think that the kingdom is just now right? Partially. They're taking some scripture, but they've ignored the fact that the Bible very clearly shows that the kingdom is still to come. It's still to come. Go to Amos chapter 9. I know a lot of you have already spent your devotional time in Amos this morning, but I want you to go back there real quick. And by the way, if you spend devotional time in Amos, you're having a bad day. All right. But Amos chapter 9, look at verses 11 through 15. Amos chapter 9. I want you to see how the Bible's been talking about all this stuff all along. And when you start taking it literally, folks, and believing it, it becomes so clear. Amos chapter 9, verse 11. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of the grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. And I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. And I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given to them, says the Lord your God. So if God says that there's going to come a time when he, along with the nation of Israel, brings all the nations to the land and plants them in it and they'll never again be uprooted. We've got to take it seriously, folks. It's going to happen. Well, no, it's actually on the earth. We hear the word heaven and we think we go be with him. Actually, this is going to be on this earth. It'll be heaven in the sense that we're with God and he's with us. But it won't be a spiritual ethereal place. It is here. It's here on this earth. The kingdom is still to come. You might not believe me yet. Go to Isaiah 60. Go to Isaiah 60. Look at verse 21. And you need to thank me for the fact that I've only shown you some of the passages. Go to Isaiah 60, look at verse 21. The more you start reading your Bibles, you're going to start seeing it everywhere as you really believe that what God says is going to actually happen. Isaiah 60, verse 21. Your people shall, be, shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land, what? Forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be Glorified. God promised the nation of Israel that they're going to all be righteous. The nation, the nation of Israel is all going to be righteous, and they're going to be in the land forever. Well, the very last passage for tonight, and I mean it. <laughs> Romans 11, verses 25 through 29. Because we read this last week, but I want you to see this section again, because there's something in here that now hopefully will make a whole lot more sense than it did before. In Romans 11, verses 25 through 29, Paul says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel, which is left, as we know from our study, will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. By the way, the deliverer will come from Zion and banish ungodliness from who? Which is who? Israel. We've already experienced this. 
But the Jews are going to experiencing. He's going to come. When he comes and sets up his kingdom, that's when he erases their sin. And it'll be my covenant with them when I take away their sin. Now, as regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. By the way, does anybody know their names? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. You see that? What God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he will fulfill. The reason why Israel is still exists is because God made promises way back that he will fulfill. He says in the book of Malachi, uh, Malachi chapter 3, he says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O Israel, are not destroyed. The only reason Israel still exists is not because they've been nicer than all the other nations. They've been just as wicked, if not worse, because they had a lot of light from God. And he revealed himself to them and he led them by a cloud and a pillar at night. And he, re he revealed his truth and his word and his law to them. They had way more understanding than the nations around them. Yet what did they do? They copied the nations around them. And the things that God used them as a judgment against them because of their nation's wickedness, Israel then went and did. And if God had any right to do it, he had tons of right to wipe them off the face of the earth. But how come Israel still exists? How come even though every nation in the history of the world pretty much has been wanting to wipe Israel off the earth? How come many people have tried to just eradicate the Jews from our history? How do they still exist? How in the world do we not know any more Moabites or Ammonites, but Israel still exists? How in the world are they even back in their land when everybody doesn't even want them there? And nobody doesn't, they want to get them out of there. How in the world is that even happening? Because God made a promise and he said, I'm going to fulfill my promises to the forefathers. And because of that, I will keep all of the promises that I have made. And folks, just understand something. Yes, the kingdom is now in the lives of those of us who have trusted him as our savior. And it's being evidenced through Christ living through us and within and amongst us. But we're not the kingdom. We're a picture of the kingdom until it comes. And the kingdom is coming to this earth. The sad thing is, 80% of Christians don't believe it. They think that we just will be here until the end and then we just go be with the Lord. An actual literal time of Jesus ruling and reigning on this earth. They don't believe it. When the Bible clearly says it. And we're going to show you some more of that next week. Well, thanks for coming. We'll see you then.